This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to discuss Chapter 3 from The Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon. The title of the chapter is The Pitfalls of National Consciousness. Today we're talking about some national liberation, the Algerian Revolution, Franz Fanon, and his famous book, The Wretched of the Earth, specifically the chapter, The Pitfalls of National Consciousness. Yeah, it's which, chapter three. And uh, yeah, this was an awesome read. I, you know, I've always appreciated Fanon a lot. I think that there is a lot to learn from him, even if you're critical of national liberation. And in a way, he kind of points out a lot of the pitfalls of national liberation in this text. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's literally, it's literally kind of in the name of the article. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's a tragic piece. Like, um, clearly, this is someone with skin in the game. Yes, he, he was Algerian. Spilled blood for this. Yeah, he was part. I don't. I think he was part of the FLN, the Algerian National Liberation Front. Yeah, and yeah, he was. The Algerian Revolution is, is kind of fascinating to me because it was kind of one of the instances where the Soviet Union totally fucked up and failed to actually support a national liberation struggle, even in the most minor way. For example, the um, Communist Party of France didn't actually support Algerian independence, and they took a kind of a weak-ass pacifist stance. What was and, the rationale for that? Well, I think that there was this idea that Algeria was basically France, that there, that it was essentially just almost a, belonged to France and was part of France. Yeah, it was part of France. Like That's the way they looked at it. They didn't see it as it was just a, con, a colony, you know, way out east that they would loot. They saw it as, like, part of their own, like, homeland. Yeah, this was actually part of like the Enlightenment centralist tradition where all the territories were just part of this like, you know, absolutist kind of body. Yeah, or, or Republican body, colonized whatever the case may be. It was colonized in 1830, which is uh, what happened in 1830. Uh, let's see. There was the there's the July uprising in 1830. Yeah. So they had still they still had an absolutist system at that point. I'm correct. Well, and I got to go from king to king. They go from uh, bourbons to uh, what's the fuck? Yeah, from what I remember, like the European powers basically have this conference, and France specifically talks about how like it wants to have power in Africa, like have a colony, because like all the other powers basically have colonies and territories in Africa, and they want a piece of the the yeah. African pie. July Revolution, the uh, revolution, French Revolution of 1830, yeah, deposes the King Charles the Tenth, the French Bourbon monarch, and his cousin Louis Philippe, or the Duke of Orleans, gets on the throne, who will be overthrown in 1848. 
So basically, France France didn't have a real republic until 1870, until the <laughs> after Louis uh, fucking the Paris Commune gets <laughs> murdered and drowned in blood. But uh, anyway, so yeah, France basically sees Algeria as part of France. They're completely chauvinistic about this. There was, there probably was in terms of population, like a geo geographical proximity that provided more of a rationale for that than say like Vietnam or Haiti or something. Well, also the Soviet Union had a vested interest in not pissing off France in a way they didn't have with a lot of the Western powers. So they could support those national liberation movements as proxy wars. Yeah. Well, for example, with France, they Vietnam, wanted France to flip. Well, they wanted, and that also kind of shows in Vietnam how the Soviets kind of took a conciliatory stance towards the French in Vietnam and how Ho Chi Minh kind of had to go against the uh, Soviet Union a little bit to fully, you know, achieve the overthrow of the French. But anyway, so I think you know, the whole Algerian Revolution is really part of a period of global revolution where all the old colonial powers are basically dismantled and all the former colonies develop into full-on nation states and there's a process of state building and development that's still kind of going on to this day that you know we live in a post-colonial world because of these revolutions but it's primarily a world made of independent nation states with their own sovereign borders and markets and aiming to develop some kind of capitalist relations in their society. And I think this really did happen because of what was a revolution of the poor peasants and, you know, the petty bourgeois, you could say, in these colonial countries. They were popular revolutions. So I was a little bit of a uh, fan and newbie here. I've never read his stuff before. By the time I found out who he was, I was kind of already in left-com country, and I'm like, yeah, it's just nationalism. I don't need to read that. I've already seen Battle of Algiers. I'm good. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, reading this, I actually really enjoyed it. And I think that's because Fanon kind of knows the surest way of my, to my heart. Uh, shitting on the middle class. There's a lot yeah. of... There's a lot I, of I would say the, the, my highlight for the, um, for the whole, for the whole text was, was that period where he's just really shitting on the middle class. Yeah, he goes hard, and he basically completely sort of dismisses the third world bourgeoisie as an impediment to be the develop the national development of the countries. So he's talking about the the national bourgeoisie, and he's kind of saying that they can't really offer a truly liberatory perspective that can unify all the different tribal groups into a you know a nation. And so he says, from the chauvinism of the Sangalese to the tribalism of the Yogloffs is not the big step. For, in fact, everywhere, if a national bourgeoisie has failed to break through to the people as a whole to enlighten them, and they consider all problems in the first place with regard to them, a failure due to the bourgeoisie's attitude of mistrust and to the haziness of its political tenets, everywhere where the national bourgeoisie has shown itself incapable of extending its vision of the world sufficiently, we observe a falling back towards old tribal attitudes and furious and sick at heart, we perceive that race feeling in its most exasperated form is triumphing. Since the sole motto of the bourgeoisie is replaced with foreigner, 
and because it hastens in every walk of life to secure justice for itself and to take over the posts that the foreigner has vacated, the small people of the nation, taxi drivers, cake sellers, and shoe blacks, will be equally quick to insist that the Dehamans go home to their own country or will even go further and demand that the fool bees and the pools return to their jungle or their mountains. And so he's actually kind of predicting how in a lot of these post-colonial countries, you actually have internal colonialism towards minority groups. And how he's kind of trying to say that the, the national bourgeoisie doesn't have universalistic enough of an actual viewpoint to truly offer any kind of real liberation, even just at like a democratic national level. He's very well, well, and on some and level, think- on some level, that makes sense because you know the infrastructure that has been built has been built for colonialism. It's not built to develop like the colonized nation. So any yeah. any anybody who immediately takes power at that point is going to have an instrument that is basically tilted towards that and absent like a genuine program to fundamentally transform the society. That's kind of what that's kind of where things are going to slouch towards. I mean, Fanon doesn't really take it in that deterministic direction. He contrasts like the sort of democratic revolutions that happened in like Europe, led by the European bourgeoisie to the national struggles, uh, the anti-colonial struggles led by the middle classes of Africa. And he finds the African middle class lacking in terms of just not having the same sort of bourgeois humanism that the European bourgeois has. And it does stem from their class position being like not fully in understanding the capacities of the economy and things like that. I mean, part of the problem here, he never says this explicitly, but you can basically see how part of the problem with colonized countries is that they weren't thoroughly like capitalized. They weren't like primitive accumulation wasn't fully accomplished. Well, I think it's because colonialism actually retards capitalist development because it tries to enforce, you know, pre-capitalist more, directly exploitative forms of living on the those societies. And so therefore it does actually like it introduces market relations, but it doesn't actually introduce capitalism. Well, it's, it's, it's extraction. I mean, it is kind of capitalism, but it's extractive capitalism. It doesn't reinvest. Yeah. It's not actually expanding the productive forces of that nation at all. Like the the national level, it's, it's stunted in a way yeah it's there's still like peasants largely there's isn't really development except which, for to the extent that they can extract resources which explains the corruption because you still have these really like highly developed tribes and kinship networks and so anybody who gets into a position yeah. of power is going to redistribute things via those kinship networks and not towards yeah. some kind of like generalized rational citizenry right and Fanon is really saying that you have to basically overcome all these different kinship and tribal differences. And that's the, one of the key problems of the party. Actually, his stuff on the party is really interesting. He says that one of its goals is to be, you know, to, co- to represent every single different area and tribal group so that there can be a, a party that truly represents everyone. It isn't just basically uh, the rule of one ethnic group over the others. Yeah, there's a fundamental divide between like the rhetoric of African unity that's put forward by these anti-colonial revolutions during their their peak 
and then it slowly slides back into like racialism and then like into just the most primitive of tribal relations and bigotries. Yeah, he says, I guess one of the points in kind of the limits of national consciousness is for fan on that national consciousness. If it does if you don't go beyond national consciousness, you kind of, just thinks that you'll regress back into a more chauvinistic tribalism, it seems. I so his argument I, seems to be that you need to go beyond national consciousness to a socialist consciousness. Right, and I thought that in, in that vein, there were actually things that apply very much outside of the African national middle class and, and outside of the colonial context that um, when he's criticizing the middle class, like when he says... Um, the national middle class constantly demands the nationalization of the economy and of the trading sectors. I feel like this could almost end up, this next part could almost end up as a critique of a certain Marxism even. This is because from their point of view, nationalization does not mean placing the whole economy at the service of the nation and deciding to satisfy the needs of the nation. For them, nationalization does not mean governing the state with regard to new social relations whose growth mm. it has been decided to encourage. To them, nationalization quite simply means the transfer into native hands of those unfair advantages which are a legacy of the colonial period. So I think well, that touches yeah. on a lot of the points you all were making. And on top of that, I think it's it's applicable, though, outside of the African context in that there are plenty of socialists who see transforming the... We just want to nationalize the banks. Right. There's not there's not, there's not a large... There's not a longer-term vision. I'm, I see I that mean, more as like these like people who are all about like sovereign wealth funds now. And they dream of like the sovereign wealth fund, and they basically want like you know, Alaskan-style oil nationalization. That's, like, the ultimate, like, horizon well, line of their politics. I think what he's contrasting it to, though, is very illustrative, because he's saying he's governing saying the state not... with regard to new social relations and, you know, deciding right. to satisfy the needs of the whole nation. And I, I think, but, in but a way, that, that idea of, of the economy being unified with the state is kind of how both Lenin and he conceive this like um, ending of the the state's conflict with civil society. But there is no uh, civil society. That's exactly the problem, though. Well, right? I think uh, Fanon is pointing out the whole nationalization thing, like a very real problem that every post-colonial state has come into, which is that you need to develop your own national economy so you're not completely reliant on Western finance capital. And so nationalization for these middle-class petty bourgeois elites is just basically a t protectionist tool to develop the national capital. It's purely about, yeah, it's purely about capitalist. Yeah, and Fanon is basically saying, he's arguing kind of like for, what was his name, the Kwame, uh, he was... um an African revolutionary who argued for like African socialism, which was like a third alternative to Soviet style socialism and Western developmentalism. And it ended up, you know, being an admirable idea perhaps, but it ended up having to fall into a lot of the same problems of developmentalism. And so I think of one of the problems here is that Fanon is talking about a lot of issues that are just going to be inherent to the material realities of, a post-colonial nation struggling to exist with sovereignty I mean, after yeah. years of colonial slavery. I mean, 
he, I think we're ignoring specifically the way he talks about how, like, in the act of nationalization, they, they don't really do much with the industry, and they don't really it's even seek to, like, modernize it in any particular way, and they fall back specifically on, like, romanticizing artisan artisanry and, like, peasant life and things like that, rather than yeah. actually trying. So I, I don't think you can actually make the connection between like that sort of social, the sort of like actually existing socialism or whatever you want to call it. And like Fanon's critique of like this sort of nationalization that happens in like neo-colonial nations. Right. Well, yeah. can we, can we talk? I, I disagree. But if you guys want to move on, that's fine. well, I, I want to say something that's related to this. Um, <clears throat> politically his attitudes towards uh nationalism more generally you know one might say it's dialectical it's complicated right uh because this whole thing is about how nationalism itself is is insufficient and if you take it on its own terms it leads to like hypersectarian like racism and and you know bourgeois decadence and petty bourgeois like subpar third rate <laughs> yeah, decadence too he talks a lot about bourgeois decadence i love it yeah um but here let's see um it's in the last paragraph he he essentially ha- believes that there has to, he believes that there has to be a national stage in consciousness in, yeah. in a movement um and i used to not agree with that but i think like over the past few years i've kind of come to agree with fanon on this question because that's how it actually happened in history well that's the uh, this is a stalinist thesis more generally it's not just fanon you know like but yeah it is how this panned out like to, yeah like, i hate to say it i wish that you know no. we could have just skipped nationalism and all had world communism but like there are just you know, the, the reality of colonialism meant that the majority of the actual world was shut out from political life and was shut out from social life. And you really couldn't have true internationalism unless colonialism was abolished. Well, and everything was just being subjected to Cold War politics very aggressively the entire time, which distorts any kind of Marxist project when you when you have that kind of influence. I mean, when the, when the revolution maybe it had the revolution materialized in the early twentieth century, maybe it might have been able to skip over all that. But absent like a vibrant workers' movement in the imperialist core, I can see why <laughs> nationalism would be the banner that a lot of that stuff was run under. Here, I, I just wanted to uh, read a quote here because first of all, it has a startling beginning, um, but where it goes too. The new peoples, unawakened at first, but soon becoming more and more clear-minded, will make strong demands for this uh, program, social program. So the African people and indeed all underdeveloped peoples, contrary to popular belief, very quickly build up a social and political consciousness. What can be dangerous is when they reach the stage of social consciousness before the stage of nationalism. If this happens, we find an underdeveloped countries fierce demands for social justice which paradoxically are allied often with are are allied with often primitive tribalism the underdeveloped peoples behave like starving creatures this means that the end is very near for those who are having a good time in africa their government will not be able to prolong its own existence indefinitely 
A bourgeoisie that provides nationalism alone as food for the masses fails in its mission and gets caught up in a whole series of mishaps. But if nationalism is not made explicit, if it is not enriched and deepened by a very rapid transformation to a consciousness of social and political needs, in other words, into humanism, it leads into a blind alley. There is so much packed in there. And a lot of those things I can't help but hear sound, you know, pretty racist coming out of my mouth. Uh, <laughs> re no, really, but and like, no, I know what you mean. That's why I thought it was funny. Oh, I, yeah. I, I, I kind of cringed for yeah. like a second when I said primitive tribe tribal yeah. relations. No, but this is he, he uses, he uses shut he it uses down. The shut it down. We're too white to talk about this. Shut no. it down. <laughs> well he uses the phrase tribalism throughout the text, which like tribalism I is mean, one of those dog whistle words in, let's in go, the twenty first century. Look, I don't want I don't want us to get a bad we reputation. Need a special problematic sound effect on this I show. Yeah. I don't want us to get a bad reputation. Let's just go back to reading Dugan and reading uh, <laughs> just Aragorn. Yeah we might yeah, let's stick to unproblematic Next, stuff. We're like, gonna no, just read the Turner Diaries, and it's gonna be, it's gonna be a blast. We're... All right, back back on topic. I think yeah, yeah. Here in Fanon, what I think is interesting is a lot of people romanticize pre-colonial class societies, essentially, like the Incas, for example. Very complex and oppressive class society, but they're kind of fetishized. And oh man, people, they're mad. They're magic. You just have to learn their mystical. Well, people ways. act like yeah, poor Dika thought they were magic. People, <laughs> no, that's the way people act about third world True. people. They act like they're magic, and they live in these perfect societies that have no internal contradictions of their own. And Fanon, this, this tribalism that exists in Africa is a real existing problem in you know creating a you know a new society. These tribal loyalties can be parochial. And they can be patriarchal, and they can lead to pointless violent infighting, and they're obstacles to unity. Because in a way, it, one thing people don't understand about Africa is that it's very much divided in a lot of ways on tribal lines, even to this day. And so one of the big struggles is kind of the, the struggle between developmentalism and modernization and kind of destroying to like the roots of these agrarian-based tribes. And I mean, so Fanon is really speaking to that contradiction. Yeah, I mean, it isn't un uncommon for warlordism to break out in this kind of historical circumstance. Yeah, like China was subject to a lot of that before you know the communists the communists took power. Well, I mean, honestly, like you should kind of make an argument that it's probably best that communists lead these national liberation struggles because if you think about it, like look at Vietnam, they're you know, they're not doing too bad. And like. Mm. If, if, if it had, if they had just become a puppet government of the U.S., I don't think they'd be even be doing as well. Yeah, but they're so an they outlier. They have Ford dealerships. They're, they're like, I mean, uh, they're not a puppet of the U.S. Though they're no, no, they no US I, I agree. But... You know, an outlier. You know, they're they're that's a quite unusual case. They um they defeated China is done pretty amazingly, and they're yeah. a post-colonial Marxist state. Like yeah, I the, mean the, the, the two. So I'm just right. trying to say that, you know, state capitalism or like Bureau of Developmental Bureaucratic Socialism did actually provide a lot of these countries with the starting point for industrialization in a very effective way. Oh, if you are if you are a developing country and yeah, like that's my it's, point. It's 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 I don't think that hard a decision at all. And like I'm 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 always the first to say that if you're in, you know, if you're in like around the territory and and 
if you're in like a an underdeveloped but like European country like Russia, you know, maybe capitalism would have been less brutal than what happened in Russia. But a, a lot of times in in Africa, I mean, capitalism was so barbaric and cruel and brutal that there's it uh, like yeah, it is conceivable that under like Leninist governments that would have went better for the people. It's, I don't yeah. know how though to square this embrace ultimately that seems latent in this this sort of this not embrace but side acceptance or or tacit acceptance mm-hmm. of national consciousness. Right. I, I see at the same time with the quote I was reading before, just the inner Marxist crying out when he's kind of saying that the pitfalls of national middle class ideology are that they they focus only on transforming the forces of production without any interest in the relations of production or the way well, everyday people relate to the state listen read on violence that's the first chapter i think of this book and very kind of explain i actually I, before but it's been a hell of a long yeah. time ago. and that is where he explains kind of like how national identity develops which is through the armed struggle of the colonized against the colonizer, essentially. Through this process of struggling, the the colonized develops a sense of personhood that's been robbed from them since birth because of, you know, colonial oppression over hundreds of years in many cases. And so there is this kind of selfhood and identity of being a nation that is denied to them and that by combating the colonialists, they can develop a national identity which is something that people kind of take for granted but if you're a colonized subject yeah and you're constantly told that you belong to a, a lower class yeah, because of your national identity you're, you're going to uni- like if, if you're oppressed as a certain national identity you're going to unite around that national identity overthrowing like an occupying force is a hell of like a national origin story i mean look yeah. at look at look at the united states we're still talking yeah. about that shit well, I think we look at it like before, like, you know, 1945, you just had huge swaths of the world that were the property of colonial empires. And so, you know, Fanon is talking about this revolution that sweeps the majority of the world and fights back against these empires and creates an entirely, you know, basically an entirely new world out of what was once just a playground for European salute. Yeah, and these people who are treated as just, you know, objects, they become subjects in history. Well, I was just going to say, that's kind of why I like Lenin's view on anti-colonialism, because he just doesn't see the colonial people as like passive subjects waiting for Europe to go communist. So for them to be integrated into communism, he sees the colonial subjects as active subjects in the world revolution itself. Well, and I mean, he does, though, see kind of like the limits of decrepit leaders reaching back into the hey remember the good times remember when it was us versus them remember when we kicked the whites out wasn't that great and how that sort of just becomes a cover for the sort of increasing incompetence and ineptitude of standing governments under a dictatorship Right. To quote it again, to them, nationalization quite simply means the transfer into native hands of those unfair advantages which are a legacy of the colonial period. I mean, I think he's he's very clearly got a, a tension running through this text. I well, mean, yeah, I, I agree yeah. the tension of history is the thing. Yeah. Donald, but can can you explain to me what the hell's going on in that quote that I read? Because because I hear you, and yeah, I I agree, and I even reluctantly have to admit that history 
you know, these national revolutions, it does seem to be like this bourgeois stage that has to occur. And even a lot of the dynamics that Fanon is talking about, apparently just historically necessary. I'm not very comfortable with that, but you know, I can like swallow that. But when, when, when you skip the stage of nationalism, fierce demands for social justice are allied with primitive tribalism. And this sort of means, this means that the end is very near for having a good time in Africa and that the people behave like starving creatures. Like what, you know, what, what is he getting at here? What, what does it, what does a tribe that, that build that gets social and political consciousness directly missing from this national stage that his history bears out for the reasons he spells out will lead to bourgeois decadence. Like it has to <laughs> like, what is he I saying? mean that I think that is a complicated, like I would have to mull over that, you know, paragraph or, you know, a few sentences. I, you know, I feel like I comprehend I need... it. I think. Yeah, but I think yeah. reading this book for me, like as a whole, is long overdue, and hopefully, the point is, maybe I could take a stab at this. Maybe I can take a stab at this. I I think what he seems to be uh, that specific quote you're talking about, right, Lexi? Okay, may, it seems like what he's trying to say is that basically, nationalism has to be some kind of means to an end, and not just the right. That's yeah, what I'm that's, getting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, or, so it's like yeah. you, you you set up a nation state, but for what? It's not just you set for up the a state nation, state. nation state. You, exactly, and you're you're supposed to. And there's a greater cosmopolitan ethic that comes along with, with the national liberation struggle. Okay, that can be extended into a socialist consciousness. And so think, our job is to kind of push the struggle to take this more cosmopolitan, right. that humanism, element, that humanism, that, even even right. though it's nationalist. It's still basically humanist and is based on greater ideas of equality. Right. And that so, is kind of how you overcome tribalism, essentially. Right. Because in order to create a nation, you need to unite some tribes. Yeah, exactly. That's basically. Okay. Like, and also, Fanon doesn't just touch upon like tribalism and racism. He also covers how like the sort of divides and like religion are also like played upon by like the national bourgeois in the same way that they were played upon in the days of like colonization and it's all part of the fight and conquer tactic yeah the muslim arabs would be contrasted with the black christians and like it was always tapped into by the national bourgeois and they would end up playing into the old racial tropes trying to like make out like the arabs as like imperialist whites who have mm. like imperialists who have more in common with the whites than they do with the whole of the African people. Yeah. And Europe in its own historical ascendance into like the development of nations, they had no shortage of ethnic and religious conflicts as well. Yeah. But the difference is they weren't in this kind of like pressure cooker situation where you had this more technologically advanced outer power circling around like vultures looking to pick at what they can and exploit any fundamental divide for its well, own gain. I would say that in Europe you did have the struggle against monarchy and that was right. the kind of thing that created European national identity in a lot of cases or it was an existing monarchy who kind of mm. modernized themselves well, but, but at the same time I think that you know it is like America, for example, our national identity is very much formed through our bourgeois revolution. France, their national identity is very much in reference to you know their bourgeois revolution. 
And so I think that there is this kind of, you know, universal aspect. It's not just the third world, I think, that this even applies to. Like, I think you could look at the Russian Revolution and kind of see these dynamics that Fanon talks about. Yeah. I would preface that with the decadence of the coming out of the revolution, like the decrepitness of the ideals slowly, like just coming to ferment and becoming rotten over yeah. time. You I was going to say, this that. is like a critique of the national bourgeoisie basically leading national liberation movements. Yeah. Fanon basically argues that the national bourgeoisie of these African and colonized nations ultimately skipped the sort of like heroic romantic stage of capitalist revolution where they're pushing for these humanistic ideals and like fighting for fighting against the monarchy and that sort of thing. They completely skip that straight into decadence. They just slide right into it immediately on taking power. Well, it's, it's also just a development problem. You know, these people are not an autonomous class. They were trained to, like a lot of them were just civil servants who were, it was cheaper to train these people up than it was to like import more white people who knew what they were doing from Europe. The system in place, once you get rid of the colonizers, it's not an autonomous unit. And yeah, so you, you still have to manage that division of labor. Yeah, so you still have to develop, like you, you still have to develop the, intelligentsia and the technicians so you can actually get to a point where you have like a functional like self-sufficient national economy but and that's kind of the i mean and that is kind of the geopolitical bind that they're in is it is the problem of nationalism okay you get independent nationhood but you still exist within this global hierarchy of nation states yeah you're going to have kind of the same problems that you did before maybe it's a little better because you know there's some like nominal self-determination there but you still exist within the context of a global world market well it gets rid of one problem but makes it so that all of a sudden you're responsible for a whole slew of new problems so yeah. it's kind of like a form of freedom that makes you free to be it's it's like you're no longer a slave anymore you're free but now you're now you're free to sell your labor in the international market it's, it's, it's like the worst form of domination being abolished to introduce you into a more impersonal form of domination it's like becoming your own boss basically and substituting the tyranny of the firm to the control of like the free market and finance capital is what determines you know your income but i think that the reason that you know these revolutions happen means that there is something to them that there was something that the kind of idea that there would be bourgeois national liberation revolutions within most of the world before there would be proletarian revolutions. Because, I mean, that's literally how it happened historically. And in many cases, these, these national liberation revolutions, they did kind of take up more cosmopolitan and more you know, democratic Republican rhetoric, especially the more Marxist ones. I think that these were the movements that were they were fueled more by the peasants and the lumpen and even some of the proletariat. Because Fanon kind of writes He's, off the proletariat. He, he, he says the lumpen proletariat and the peasants are the real revolutionary class. And that's the class that really becomes liberated in the revolution because all of a sudden they're able to become human again, essentially. And so he basically sees the national bourgeoisie as this conservative class. It's a conservative factor in the struggle. And you could say that in the more left-wing national liberation movements, you had a weaker bourgeoisie, but a more powerful peasant class. 
Well, yeah, because the peasantry is still there, and it's 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 kind of still in its full development as a class, right? Like you've just kind of like put them in a time machine and like put them forward into this other era. And because they are composed as a class, you can they can probably serve as a more reliable class base than say the stooge bourgeoisie or the very weak urban proletariat. If you think about it, like developmental bureaucratic like socialism or whatever, like state capitalism, whatever you want to call it, it's almost like a form of developmentalism that's supposed to be easier on the peasant. Yeah. Even though it's often violently against the peasant. It's still supposed to be a better deal for the peasant in the long term it it usually is like a nicaraguan peasant would have loved living in a soviet collective farm in the 70s but (laughs) in the united states (laughs) would we would despise it like there there is like you know this weird way that the third world to see something like the soviet union as a huge upgrade in living standards and then but the west would see it as a downgrade in living standards Mm. I do kind of want to push back on this idea that this wave of Natlib was how it had to happen because right of course in the again in the absence of like a successful like imperialist core revolution I think I might be able to agree with that but I mean I'm talking right. about how it actually happened is there like, was not successful revolution right so yeah I agree with that and I think that's the most important thing however I'm also interested in the train of thought that Jake is going down here right and and there's certainly something to the idea that there were other historical options, not maybe at the time, but based on prior events and that sort of thing. Well, I think a debate in history that's influenced and interesting related to this is M.N. Roy and Lenin's debate. M.N. Roy was the founder of the Mexican Communist Party, but he was also an Indian in the country, India, um, revolutionary. And he believed in national liberation, similar to Fanon, but was very skeptical of national bourgeoisie. And so he thought the Comintern was wrong to tell communists right. to align with the national bourgeoisie and that instead the communist parties should lead the national liberation struggles in alliance with the Soviet Union and bring them socialism. And M.N. Royce, you know, his whole idea was basically, you know, not using the, just completely ignoring the bourgeoisie and mobilizing the proletariat and the peasantry and, have the communist party you know wage a national liberation struggle on its own independently and basically move towards socialism as similar to james Connolly, actually who is another kind of socialist who try to combine socialism with matlib it seems to me too that if okay if you smash the imperialist core right then all you have to do is go mop up like these backwater you know regiments that are holding these various lands and a lot of that will take care of itself because they don't have support for the base countries right and then all because like the peasantry is fairly self-sufficient they're growing their own food you could focus on developing industry in the core and then just kind of gradually bring like increased agricultural implements to the countryside and you could have yeah. like a slow three-century integration of the yeah. world productive system have like an Amish style, like, yeah. you know, the, the peasantry will be like, okay, I see the point. Well, of honestly, this. This, isn't, this isn't gonna like, fuck our kids up. Does the history of revolution show us that revolution is going to begin in the core rather than the periphery? Uh, no. Exactly. But I mean, the, the thing is, though, where is the core now? I mean, where is the periphery now? Where well, that's the, the thing. That's why history is on our side because global capitalism has kind of made it so that there isn't uh, the United States is still a top dog hegemonic power, but the proletariat is no longer a minority class. Because the thing is, in 1945, in these countries of national liberation, 
you had majority peasant populations. Like, yeah, you can say, yes, the proletariat should have had a united independent struggle for communism and fought the nationalists, but they were a fucking, like, the, the proletariat was incredibly small. And so absence of a world revolutionary movement they can link up with, it just seems inevitable that there's going to be national liberation revolutions at a certain point when colonialism just stops becoming feasible. I thought that was what Jake was saying in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a shame Marx's uh, prophecy, you know, uh, the Russian prophecy late, late in life didn't come to pass. But um, I think the spirit of what Jake is saying is like in any world revolution or anything that happens from now on this point out. Um, yeah, there's going to be no forced collectivization, no forced oh, yeah. force integration in that way. And there needs to be a fundamentally different way of withering away that distinction not it's not going to be well, abolished by gunpoint you're not going to put it yeah up exactly you're not going to destroy people's national identities with like a centralized communist dictatorship you're going to find ways to integrate different nations and find ways to you know not just have like assimilation from a like majority power but actually have a real integration of cultures this bothers me with some of the sharp-nosed uh, american leftists that because, you know, indigenous people are, you know, not that large of a demographic in the United States, uh, don't think that this is that big of an issue. But I think it's, you know, a very big issue in terms of the self-identity of, quote, the nation, you know, <laughs> of America and, and what kind of territory this is and what it's going to be. I totally yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, that. I mean, that's part of the spirit of, of how I read this stuff, because I, th I think it's interesting when Fanon is making a comparison between the African national revolutions and the Latin American revolutions. Because in a lot of cases, a lot of those Latin American republics, and I guess sometimes in Africa, but a lot of those Latin American republics were settler republics, or it was settler nationalism, you know, it's like in, like in the United States. Yeah, right? totally. Or, or in, uh, you know, apartheid South Africa with the Boer, like the, the, I, I was kind of, you know, like I'm not I'm not used to people comparing those kinds of national revolutions anymore. <laughs> Although people, I mean, uh, in the American Revolution, they they dressed up like indigenous people to do the Boston Tea Party because of that comparison. <laughs> I just think that generally Marxists should regard bourgeois revolutions as progressive, but not necessarily the revolution we're fighting for, and we should still study these revolutions because there are still things we can learn about them just from the nature of mobilizing the masses. Because Fanon's vision here seems to very much be kind of this mass mobilization of the people in this direct democratic way to where the entire nation basically creates a collective will of the people. He says that, um, you know, the duty of those at the head of the movement is to have the masses behind them. Allegiance presupposes awareness and understanding of the mission, which has to be fulfilled. In short, an intellectual position, however embryonic. We must not voodoo the people, nor dissolve them in emotion and confusion. Only those underdeveloped countries led by revolutionary elites who have come up from the people can today allow the entry of the masses upon the scene of history. But, we must repeat, it is absolutely necessary to oppose vigorously and definitively the birth of a national bourgeoisie and a privileged caste. To educate the masses politically is to make the totality of the nation a reality to each citizen. 
It is to make the history of the nation part of the personal experience of each of its citizens. Like that sounds like some stuff out of the French Revolution. Like I was gonna say, it sounds like Mao. I was gonna yeah. say. I was going to say, Xi uh, Jinping, president for life, baby. Woo! Same well, I mean, difference. There was, well, there were a lot of people who you know, combined ideas of France Fanon and Mao. The Black Panthers, for example. They were very influenced by France Fanon and Mao. I'm sure Mao. I'm sure Fanon was probably influenced by Mao to a certain extent. Yeah, but I still think that Fanon like, was critical of China and the Soviet Union and kind of still wanted to carve out his own path. Oh, I see. was very wait, much aware said, of the problems of those systems. Comparing, I thought you were comparing Mao to like the uh, what ha- the Chinese Revolution to the French Revolution. Well, there's comparisons to be made there. I was, I was thinking there was a comparison there. Yeah. And I yeah, almost yeah. was thinking it's that the it's, it's who made critical the way the the West views these. I mean, and I don't even want to apologize for these developmentalist socialist regimes exactly, but right. it's critical the way the West looks at those when its own national revolutions were similarly violent yeah. and such. I mean, I, I don't know. It's it's no no. That's what, I, that's what I've always. That's no. what I've been trying to say is that that's why it's fucking racist. To be against that loop because basically, but what do you do with it today? Like, what do you say to a Puerto right. Rican Marxist today? All right, I we mean, can talk that, about that. In well, okay, I, I, I'm going to speak up in defense of knee jerk anti Nat lip because okay, so much of the content I could see. No, I, I think we th- need to temper it with that absolutely. Well, because I can see how so much of the left in recent decades has been so uncritically pro Nat lib, and you know, you get the tanky left, the Maoist left. Uh, the social state the certain, department left. Yeah, the 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 decolonization left. The FSA, All of them yeah. are just yeah, the thing just, is we don't want to do it like that. They'll stand for any tin pot dictator or anybody who's even okay. Like, okay, I understand. Yeah, I understand where Jake. I used to have the you know, that exact view, but my point. I mean, let me make my point because. All of these people who say that all like national revolutions after 1914 are basically counter revolutions because of decadent capitalism, they're basically saying that all of the revolutions of white people to create nation states, like the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and these Haiti, are all, but that's an outlier. That's I may never even talk about that one anyway. But the point is, is that they see these revolutions as progressive and good. But then when the third world tries to basically take up nation states and basically become independent nation states, it's reactionary somehow. And yeah, the fact he's is, also saying, though, it's a double standard. That for Marxism. I, but I, 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 I don't, I'm not sure it's always coming from a place of like racism, though. I think it's just no, like it's a, not. It's, it, it is a lot of times. I think like it's that yeah, article I wouldn't from, say always. But I think a lot of times it does come from a healthy skepticism of class alliances of nationalists. And I think that's, you know, one thing. But a lot of times it's just if you really take apart the logic of the argument, if there's a sort unless you decide that you completely are against all of the bourgeois revolutions, think they were all basically counter revolutions. You basically are hypocritical if you're like, oh, yeah, the French Revolution was so progressive, blah, blah, blah. But uh the Algerian Revolution was just a bunch of gangsters. Like, well, the French right, Revolution the key, excuse though. because they didn't have Marx to hand them the Ten Commandments of Communism <laughs> so that they would know the proper way to do things. See, that's the thing, though. Even if these nations wanted to have communism, they didn't have the choice. And I think Fanon's very much aware of that. Someone like Thomas Sankara was very much aware of that. And their ideas were more about how can we 
kind of have a radical democratic revolution that will, you know, abolish all pre-capitalist forms of tyranny that yeah, so are left you, you, over from the colonizers and our own tribal structures. Yeah, so you have to be consistent, okay? Like, if you're going to take, if you're going to jerk off over Robespierre, you know, Robespierre killed people to his left. He, he killed, he took, yeah, yeah. He, he killed <laughs> communists, like cracked down on Babuff. You know, like that. This is all. This is all stuff that the Jacobins did. And um, and if if you're learning from them, it's by analogy. It's the way that you know the Bolsheviks. You know, the way the Bolsheviks were learning from the bourgeois revolution is that they were hoping their revolution would be an analogical step ahead of the bourgeois revolution and not what it ended up being, which was like a sort of, it's too strong to say this because I don't think a proper bourgeoisie is established in the Russian revolution, but to take a really like vulgar view of what a bourgeois revolution is as in a revolution that resolves into a, you know, bourgeois domination resolves feudalism. Like all Leninist states end up being bourgeois revolutions with red flags. They end up being bourgeois national revolutions that inevitably tend towards capitalism. Yeah. yeah. But I you think you can that- also see like sort of the same limitations of these sort of, I like to call them radical Republican revolutions instead of bourgeois revolutions. Yeah. I, I don't like, you can see the limitations there. Like you can see it in like the sort of way that like, like uh, the French Revolution became increasingly authoritarian and like the Russian Revolution became increasingly authoritarian as it broke down and like it yeah. lost mass support through like sort of unpopular policies with agrarian policies and the Russian Revolution sort of lost its popularity with agrarian policies with bad (laughs) agrarian policies yeah they were both treated in sort of the same way with like the powers of europe aligning together to crush the french revolution and forcing it into a constant state of war the same thing happened with the soviet union the powers of europe tried to crush it in its cradle yeah this is is what uh uh, mike duncan calls the entropy of of victory (laughs) In in a revolution, like once you actually get to power, you you don't or you're not just dealing with the sort of inspiring like let's fucking get rid of these people and get in power, and you get to the cold logic of of trying to manage something. Yeah, but a fucking state at that. Well, Fanon ha- illustrates an entire mechanism for how this occurs. I would like for people in the in like in the analytic Marxist tradition doing like game theory and shit and whatever Rand corporation types to reconstruct this argument because it's phenomenal. The mechanism well, spelled out. Like I think what he's describing is very much well described in the book with fury just by Arno Mayer, which is a study of violence in the French revolution and the Russian revolution and how kind of the process of consolidating power in a new power vacuum and the process of fighting counter-revolution creates this dialectic of violence between different sides. And I feel like that uh, Fanon is really useful in understanding how that works. Can we talk for a second about uh, like just kind of the way that he writes, which mm. I think is kind of interesting. Like he basically, a lot, awesome. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of this is almost written, it is almost kind of literary in a way because it's almost like a series of character studies of like different sections of society or different yeah. uh, different individuals or types or groups 
he sort of develops them and tells this sort of narrative of how they kind of develop in the process of revolution and the history of the country and so forth. It's really interesting. You can kind of see almost like the influence of like French philosophy a little bit. Like I almost absolutely, I almost, I almost want to call this episode uh, "Fanon Nominology." Oh my god, <laughs> Airhorn. <laughs> well, I think the compare. I was gonna go. I was gonna say that the comparison to radical Republicans. Because in the thought of Fanon, in the oh, thought of radical Republicans, you can kind of see the contradictions within those revolutions. And within those contradictions, you can see the, sorry, the movement towards socialism, if that makes sense. Because in the bourgeois revolution, you had the needs of mobilizing you know, millions of peasants and small proprietors. But at the same time, eventually these people start fighting for their own interests under the slogans of the bourgeoisie against the aristocracy, and eventually this starts getting more and more economic and touches on private property issues. So at a certain point, the bourgeoisie has to consolidate itself and basically crush the counter-revolution, or what it sees as the counter-revolution, which is really initially the revolution, if that makes sense. And same in the post-colonial revolutions. There's this mass mobilization of the people but after independence is won, the people want, you know, they want things like socialism and land reform. And the new elites, you know, can either, they either have enough power to hold back on this or they don't. So there's kind of a tension within the revolution itself. I think there's a part of the piece that actually really captures this uh, and this parallel we've been talking about. Quote, the single party is the modern form of the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, unmasked, unpainted, unscrupulous, and cynical. And he is talking in this, in this part about this specific context. He goes on, It is true that such a dictatorship does not go f- very far. It cannot halt the processes of its own contradictions. Since the bourgeoisie has not the economic means to ensure its domination and to throw a few crumbs to the rest of the country, since moreover it is preoccupied with filling its pockets as rapidly as possible, but also as prosaically as possible, the country sinks all the more deeply into stagnation. And in order to hide this stagnation and to mask this regression, to assure itself and to give itself something to boast about, the bourgeoisie can find nothing better to do than erect grandiose buildings in the capital and lay out money on what are called prestige expenses. It turns its back more and more on the interior and the real facts of its underdeveloped country and tends to look towards the former mother country and the foreign capitalists who count on its obliging compliance. As it does not share its profits with the people and in no way allows them to enjoy any of the dues that are paid to it by the big foreign companies, it will discover the need for a popular leader to whom will fall the dual role of stabilizing the regime and of perpetuating the domination of the bourgeoisie. Mm. And so that's obviously where socialism becomes an excruciatingly useful tool for the development of these regimes. And and obviously that's a double-bladed edge. Yeah. And and the question that we were talking about with the the knee-jerk, like uh, anti-nationalist reaction is... I think best summarized by like bring out your dead because most of these revolutions happened like a while ago. And there are these imminent critiques from people that believe in the nation, believe in the the dreams of the the founders and anti-colonial independence, but have, you know, watched over the decades how, you know, there's been national bourgeoisies that form. They are corrupt. They are, you know, exploitative, even if they weren't corrupt. 
Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just like the, 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 when when there are when there are nations when there are nations that don't have states. Like, I mean, know, if you if you swap like foreign bourgeoisie though for like foreign supporting power, like this could just as easily describe North Korea. You know, like if like like everything except for a few cities is extremely underdeveloped, like extremely based around like the cult of a leader. You know, a lot of stuff goes into like yeah. prestige things, you know. Well, I think yeah. North, Korea North, North Korea is kind of like been artificially yeah. kept there in an autarkic state for decades. No, yeah. but it, North Korea shows what the, the whole promise of delinking and creating a worker's paradise in a single country is. It really shows how flawed that whole idea is. Yeah, it just can't pot. That's not like socialism is inimical to that kind of autonomy. Yeah, and I think the problem is 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 with Fanon is that he's showing that you know you have a national liberation revolution, and the question is, do you move towards you know socialism in one country, or do you move towards just accepting Western capitalism, and or something in between? And these are all the choices that people are forced to make, and it's. It, so you're between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, it's between a rock and a hard place. And I think North Korea is kind of like an example of what happens when you like cling too hard to the right. dream of actually existing socialism. And I think Vietnam is like a better example of like someone mm -hmm. who actually did it better. Because I mean, like Vietnam went through like thirty years of war communism and then came out as a fairly decent economy with, you know, neo nap type policy well when when did they like get out of war communism in like the 80s they had the to 80s, fight the yeah. french fight the americans they had to fight the cambodians like yep. and and then so in the 80s when it was clear that leninism basically shit the bed like they kind of just made some common sense step towards well it looks like markets won history this round yeah like, but there wasn't like a there wasn't a tiananmen square type incident that accompanied it which is well, one of the big things in China is that mm -hmm. a lot of the market reforms were enforced through an oppressive state apparatus mobilized. Mm -hmm. Well, and in Vietnam, they were just so fucking tired. You know what I mean? Like fucking how many years were they fighting? Yeah, the French, America, like all that. Like people were just I'm sure at that point people were just like, ugh, whatever. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, like th they were actually just re I mean, look, I don't want to idealize it too much, but they were actually just ready to like, you know, build up a peacetime society. Like that's what they wanted to do. They were looking for the best means to do it. And yeah, exactly. Like, and I can't really state, criticize them for that. Driven market investment for a developing country historically. That's, you know, there's this really weird phrase, the East Asian tigers, quote unquote, to refer to economies that have basically taken this strategy and have proven the world system theorists kind of, you know, wrong in that, you can't have some kind of motion from the periphery, at least to, if not the core, then something that like an, you could yeah. add, uh, call the semi-periphery. Well, it, it invalidates like the whole, it doesn't invalidate the whole way of thinking, but it well, can we talk it. about that. Can we just kind of talk about the whole yeah, idea yeah, yeah. that, um, well, basically the idea is, and this is popular with dependency theorists, like Samir Amin, rest in peace, who, um, basically say that capitalist development relies on the underdevelopment of the peripheries. And for the right, most part, right. a capitalist state in, you know, the periphery is going to, you know, a large part of its surplus is going to, you know, the core, the imperialist states. 
Right. So therefore, the solution is delinking from the entire world system so you can marshal all of your nation's resources to the project of development. And the thing is, is that there have been nations in the periphery who have been able to industrialize. But the thing is, is that when these nations do successfully industrialize, they basically use, what do they call it? Import substitution and protectionism and yeah. nationalizations. But the thing is, is that the Western, that the people in the IMF and the people, you know, the bankers in the United States and Europe and all these institutions, they basically give loans on promises of restructuring of their economies on a more free trade basis. But the thing is, is that the very tactics that any country uses to build up its industry and develop is the opposite of free trade. It's protectionism and import substitution, infant industry promotion, and nationalizations of key industries to build up that basic industrial base and then you can become, you know, a consumer economy through trade in the world market. But really, the, the key strategies to development are not promoted in the third world by the financiers of the West. Oh, and so basically, I'm, pre I'm pretty sure I watched like eight documentaries on that in the early 2000s. <laughs> like Kicking Away the Ladder is what they, there's a book called Kicking Away the Ladder that really summarizes the whole idea or basically saying that the West uses protectionism to build up its strength but then it promotes free trade and you know the periphery to deny them their own tools that they use yeah to develop so they kick away the ladder essentially. Yeah one of the things that actually got me about that anti-globalization era literature was the idea of um what was called like I guess dumping at the time. Just, I, I just, I don't know. Anyway, the point is that like you would get huge agricultural subsidies from like the New Deal legacy in the United States, produce a shit ton of garbage grain at huge, huge like mass production. So you just have like, you can make it as cheap as you want and then you just dump it on a country. It yeah. just drives anyone there out of business oh yeah there's all no the peasants are fucked they, they get wiped but, out of market i mean there's like in india there's like spates of suicides uh, just because their their entire lives are, are destroyed and they have to, you just like you have you have a little bit of property and you need to eat tonight and what's gonna happen like yeah, in, exactly. in a market economy well, what's gonna happen like every every time it's not it's not a mystery like, well, and that's how proletarianization happens. Yeah. Is that small producers get more and more disciplined by the competition of not just the national market, but the global market. Yeah. The uh, yeah. Global I, market is kind of like the emergent property of this imperialist, you know, structure and all these different, you know, commercial relations intertwining it all. Yeah, proletarianization is like always horrible, however it happens. Yeah. And so that's basically the idea of protectionism is yeah. you, know, you have tariffs and stuff. And so the peasants, for example, don't have to trade with these huge businesses in the core that are far more productive. And so it does have an effect of stagnating industry. But at the same time, it allows people to stay in business and kind of develop an independent economy. So it's, it's you know, it's not a flawless form of development. But the point is, is that they don't want countries to do that. They want free trade. 
I forgot to mention the Chinese. The Vietnamese had to fight the Chinese as well. Yeah, they did. I mean, was fucking awful. They, they just took out all comers, man. Yeah. Those are some tough fucking people. They don't yeah, they fought the Pol Pot. They fought the Chinese. They yeah, they they like there were what atrocities on the border by by like the Khmer Rouge, and they're like fuck it, we have to overthrow this genocidal prick and install a proper communist dictatorship. So, uh, <laughs> dude, one of us needs to do a GIF of that scene from Old Boy. It's just Vietnam. You know what I'm talking about? No, actually. Uh, so it's like a famous scene in a Korean movie called Old Boy, where a dude. Like fights like ten guys in a hallway with a hammer, and so like you could do it where like you know like the, you put like <laughs> re, like uh, Vietnam over the guy with the hammer, and then you know, all the different countries. Anyway, sorry, but about anyway, back to fan on. I feel like if you want to understand that national liberation and that period of history, this is probably the best place to start because it really takes you inside the mind of the movement. Yeah. Also, watch Battle of the Algiers. Yeah, Battle of Algiers. That's that's something that you should watch as well. Yeah, that movie yeah, plus this book. Don't want, but don't don't watch the anime if you haven't read the manga. <laughs> yeah, this is real deal. That's it for this week. If you'd like to get hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail .com. If you'd like to support the show, you can like our Facebook page, leave us a good review on iTunes, or you could give us some money, either sending a one-time donation, or really as many times as you'd like, to swampsidechats at gmail on PayPal, or you can subscribe to our Patreon. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.